Welcome, welcome, welcome to part three of the A Blog to Watch Stroke Scottish Watches. A little mini series that we've been doing and this is part three whereby we're dealing with the high-end luxury in a guide to watches 101. So we have with us Ariel. Say hello Ariel. Hello everyone. I am so uh, I'm so glad to be back for the third part of this four-part series on explaining people how to get into watches. Thanks guys for doing this with me. No problem at all. Ricky is here as well, although he has already confessed prior to recording that he is slightly asleep. Well, also slightly awake. Yes, slightly awake. I, I thought I would just lower my energy levels down to the same as yours, Rick. You sound—you actually sound—you sound like you've been on is it ketamine or whatever it is. You sound—is that what you, you sound, stuff, huh? You sound doped up. Well, you I escaped from your basement, sleepy. so probably still have residue in my system. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, controversial. Anyway, let's Rick go on with this. <laughs> so, a episode one, we dealt with the kind of less than five hundred thousand dollar type range. Episode two, we went up to about twenty thousand dollars. Now we're on the sky's the limit. Uh, running through uh, high-end luxury watches, what to look out for, and then our final episode, which we will be recording once these three have already been out, will be to deal with your questions, and hopefully one of us, probably Ariel, because he's a smart one, will give you answers to those questions. Are you soliciting for questions? I am soliciting for questions. Is, oh. that, that's not, is that illegal in some countries still? Uh, not unless that question involves a sexual act. All right, okay. I, well, the, I mean... To be fair, some of the real high-end <laughs> top watches, we do know some people. Anyway, Jacob and Co. Jacob and Co. I'm thinking Ulysses Nardin. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway. Yes. Let me tell you a story about that. Okay, go ahead. I was, I was in Basel World a couple of years ago, and I don't know if you remember that above um, the watchmaker's desk at the Blanc Pond booth the engraving. is a television. Yeah, it's a, telev- not a, a television. And um, for whatever reason, there was an animated uh, erotic watch <laughs> that was on the big screen. So mm-hmm. someone had taken it out, decided that it should go under the, um, the little camera that was basically like a magnifying glass to show like the watchmaker doing his thing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But apparently it was a Blancpain erotic watch for the Basel World crowds to see. I remember taking a picture of it, so I still have that picture. <laughs> Ariel, uh, just go to our Instagram yes. feed and look at what I posted a week ago. I took Look the same. I ago. took the same picture. It was um, <laughs> doggy style, from what I recollect. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyways, continue going on. I have so much to say about part three, high end luxury. Yes. Uh, obviously, we're only going to be talking about erotic watches. Basically, that is the pinnacle of luxury timepieces. I mean, why? I mean, let's let's chuck the show notes out. Why? What is the need? Like. Who decided that it was a good idea that what luxury watches were really missing was a it is It's for the, the gentry. I can explain it. Who are very, they've it. got big pockets and it's the, the equivalent of rich people's dick and fart jokes, I suppose. <laughs> um, I, I guess the easiest way that I understand to explain it is it's a non-Western phenomenon. In Europe, in the United States, this doesn't do it for us. We'd rather have something far closer to a real thing. But for apparently many generations, hundreds of years, um, secret sexual iconography in Eastern cultures, especially Asia and the Middle East, have been um, prized uh, because of their taboo nature. It's quite taboo there, as you know, uh, as well as the fact that in those cultures they had far less opportunity to visualize um, uh, certain things that we might have more opportunity to see in the West. So think of it as desperation porn. (laughs) 
channel. <laughs> okay, this this episode's taking a sharp left turn from where I thought it was going to start. There we it's go. Just being very clinical about it. Anyway, fair enough. So we are using uh, some old articles that you wrote on a blog to watch as kind of reference material. And there are 10 items to run through today for $20,000 and up watches. So item one is precious metal construction. Now, these articles were written 10-ish years ago. Explain to me how you think this has changed over the sure. years sure. as to uh, the view of gold, platinum, silver, etc., German silver. Right, luxury right. Watches. So just, just to give a little bit of context... Uh, first of all, I'm really excited to talk about that, actually. But a little bit of context is that this was written in Ulysses 2009. Ulysses Nardan excited or Blanc Bon excited? Oh, it's two different, very kinds of similar excited. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when I when I wrote this, it was a you know a three part series published back to back, designed to help people getting into watches, understand what to look for in a high-end watch, especially when it came to pricing, is it worth the money, right? The whole, a big thing for me, and when we talked about this, is not just appreciate the sources of value, but is it worth the money? And just so you guys know, I later took this article and expanded it into an entire book. So when I wrote my book, The World's Most Expensive Watches, uh, the entry-level price there was $200,000. But the, the initial chapters of that book discuss, well, why are these watches worth that much to begin with? And I have five different sections to talk about things like, you know, uh, pr you know the, the, the provenance, the complications, um, you know, the jewelry element. And so I think that when you say precious metals, the way that I think that would like sort of retranslate that today is high end or, or high quality materials that require a lot of effort or are precious. So yes, it could be your traditional gold and diamonds, but it could also be something that you just can't find elsewhere. And I think this is so important today because we have watches that are extremely expensive that have fancy names for materials that are quite accessible. Carbon is a very good example. Carbon is not expensive uh, to do. There are interesting forms of it and fun ways of doing it, but Richard Mille, for example, has watches over a million dollars with uh, essentially, you know, forms of, of resins and plastics and things like that. They look great. They're very artistic. But those are any, any, anything but platinum. They have a, a prestige value to it as well. Whether or not they're worth that amount, I think the jury's still out on that. But it's an interesting, unique thing that you could easily say, well, you can't just buy, you know, your fossil watch and have that same thing. So I think a deep, a deep investigation of what the watch is made out of is important. So do you think that we have moved on from gold, platinum, etc. Well, being expensive look at blow to with buy? sapphire watches. Sapphire is a great example. So I think that there are uh, there's an important distinction. Is the material itself inherently valuable? Golden diamonds are the perfect example. Or is the process to make it into a watch case the, where the value comes in. Uh, synthetic sapphire crystal, for example, because the machining process is just so tedious. Mm -hmm. Those are two reasons why a, 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 a material could be quote-unquote precious, but it's because of, of the, the human value or the inherent value. And those are two different things. And some materials mix the two, you know? Uh, if, you had a, if you had a case made out of a diamond, oh my God, that'd be crazy. I, and it, actually, it just brings on to the, 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 the next item in the article, which is to do with natural jewels. So let's just combine the two of them. What I was about to ask was, is a carbon case actually, does, does a carbon watch have any intrinsic value because it's made of carbon in the way that a gold 
case has an intrinsic value because it's made of gold? I don't like, know. Is it expensive to work? So that zenith, which they charge more for in the carbon case than they do... I think they even charge more in the carbon case than they do in the ceramic. Yeah. Because they said it was forged. Because it was forged. Is, do we actually think there is? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. for, for, forged or forged, that's two quite different words. Uh, do we think it is in, intrinsically more, have more value? Does it even cost more to actually do? Or mm. is it no, Is there a novelty charge? Well, Victorinox have got carbon cases and they are inexpensive. So Yeah, I, I, I think it's very important to have a broad spectrum Um when you look at this, and this is one of the things that I've always thought was very good about a blog to watch, but interestingly has been used by our competitors to uh, attack us, and that is because we cover good watches at all price points, mm-hmm. right? So I know what you can buy in a hundred dollar watch, and I know what you can get in a million dollar watch. If you just covered expensive watches, you'd be completely ignorant of you know what what value you're getting in a few hundred dollar watch. Yeah. And so the uh-huh. funny thing is they make the argument, oh well, because the blog to watch covers you know Casio, uh, they certainly don't have people that buy Richard Mille, which is absolutely false. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I make it a point to look at good watches across the spectrum. So I know that you know. Uh, Citizen, for example, has a process to harden and and strengthen titanium. They they call it super titanium, which is a cute term, but it's actually a really impressive thing. That titanium is the best titanium anywhere, right? So if there's a luxury watch which is very expensive and it has finely cut but but just compl- unfinished, untreated, whatever titanium, I'm like. That's not why I want to pay money for that watch. Maybe there's a different reason. But if they're trying a premium going like, oh, look at our titanium case, I'm like, well, look at what Citizen can do for probably a lot less. Mm-hmm. In that instance, I would say that that more expensive one doesn't have that value that we're looking for. Remember, in luxury, it's about exclusivity. It's got to be expensive for a reason. If it's expensive for something that doesn't need to be expensive for, it loses that authenticity in the, in the luxury positioning. Good point. Yes, and uh, that leads me just on to one question, which is on the quality of jewel side, which one of us, if not all three of us, would actually wear a completely bejeweled Rolex Daytona? Because that's frankly all I care about. I just want one of them. Rainbow, you know what? That's Rainbow a wonderful Daytona. experience. Have you tried one on? Uh, oh, absolutely. I've, I've worn... I of love course, wearing absolutely. watches that have... <laughs> Diamonds all over. I remember wearing the Jacob and Company, the billionaire, the watch that has a retail price of $18 million. And that actually got a lot of traffic. And then one day I realized the traffic was going crazy on that um, that particular video on YouTube. It turns out that Floyd Mayweather bought that watch. And then uh-huh. people rediscovered my video about it because they wanted to know about it. Um, and th- there's there's so much... There's so much um, about that which is fun because if you are someone that can afford that and you go out into the world, you know that most people out there understand that diamonds are valuable. And and the way that I described this watch was wearing like um, you know a, a set of of like uh, you know engagement rings for like the world's most beautiful supermodels because that's really what it was. That's what you the know? Jacob and Co stand looks like at Baselworld. <laughs> <laughs> and Ricky has the photographic Tr- evidence to prove it. Truth in advertising, my mm-hmm. friends. Truth in advertising. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. who you often get in the likes of GPHG, where you get a lot of the jewelers mixing with the dedicated watch companies. And you have people, I think Jack Forster at Hodinke spent quite a bit of time uh, looking at the expertise required to diamond set and jewel set properly to try and appreciate 
where the value is not just in the diamond or the jewel itself, but also in how it's positioned and how it's actually interfaced into the watch. Have you the experience that can actually tell not only a good jewel, but a good jewel set? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I've known Jack for a long time. He and I appreciate similar details. We've done a lot of the same things together to learn this. Um, it A lot of people who like watches just sort of throw diamond settings and, and bejeweled things to the side. They dismiss it. But in reality, it's a whole art unto itself. I visited jewelry manufacturers. I remember one of my favorite experience was visiting the um, the factory of Bucciolati in, in Italy, in Milan. Mm-hmm. This was actually before Richemont bought them. But that was um, that was a very interesting experience. I've been to the, the gem setting department at Rolex. I put my hand in a fishbowl full of diamonds. That was fun. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm, I remember when they told me the the long 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 story about how long it takes <clears throat> to make the Raymond Raymond uh, sorry <laughs> I, I combined I combined uh, Daytona and Rainbow uh, the Rainbow bezel on the Daytona um, forever called the Raymond Daytona <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> um, this bezel they said take, takes two weeks. To make, I'm like, why does it take two weeks? Well, apparently the problem is, if you think about it, these are natural stones and they have natural colors. So one of the most challenging things is to find not just the right clarity, the right size, but also the right color. And so there's a sort of hunting involved in watches that have, or any jewelry for that matter, that has a large volume of stones because this isn't just something that was manufactured. Like, okay, give me a, give me a thousand of the exact same color diamond, mm-hmm. you know? And it becomes even more complicated with other stones, their various colors. I mean, you know, for example, that rubies and sapphires and emeralds, they come in various shades of the colors that they're naturally known for. And so to get, to get everything, just choosing the right stones, that's, that's, that's an art unto itself. Not to, not to mention cutting stones and setting stones and arranging stones. I mean, there's this setting called invisible setting, which uh, you may or may not be familiar with. But if you've seen it, you know what it is. And it's where you don't see the setting. How do you think that's done? You don't like see that's, the claw. That's not, yeah, that's not easy to do. Uh, the shape of <clears throat> this stone ha- has a lot to do with the way it, it's positioned, the way that light plays with it. So if you want sparkliness, luster, you know, the 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 the, gl- the, the glistening sensation of seeing precious um, precious stones with light, you have to set them the right way. You have to have the right types of stones. The cut of the stone is far more important in a lot of senses than the size of the stone or the, or the clarity. The cut is actually one of the most important things, but oftentimes they don't tell you that. So you really got to go deep in this sort of rabbit hole of, of jewelry appreciation, take like sort of like a, a GIA you know, 101 class or something like that. And it's, it's fascinating. So sorry, I can, ner- I can nerd out on that. Series Jewels 101. So let's <laughs> move off. Yeah, let's move off of those two to probably what will be the main topic of conversation and certainly has changed over the years in terms of its value, particularly at the high end, and that is manufacturer-made movement. Now, I think when you originally wrote this, it would probably have been at the start of when everyone was, it would have been around about that time when ETA, etc. were starting to draw, pull the drawbridge in in right. terms of providing movements for everybody and began the rush to began the rush to manufacture own movements. Yeah, this was this I mean so much has happened as you said since this was written in 2009. Um a lot of the wisdom holds true, but I just sort of want to tell you one of the things that was going on in the context of this. I remember there's a brand that had like an $80,000 watch with um <clears throat> 
I think it was just a 77.50 in there, and then maybe had one with a 28.92. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, patently <clears throat> too expensive. And I remember thinking to myself, people are out there, they're going to be seeing these watches, not understanding it. And if they ask a question about the movement, they better get a good answer. So it doesn't necessarily need to be in-house made. But, you know, there's there's a limit at which you want to buy, spend money and get a, a Ford engine, right? Like if you bought the Lamborghini and it's like, well, you know, it's the same engine that's in a Ford you know, like Mustang, you'd be like, well, I don't know that I'm super happy about that. Like, maybe that's great <laughs> for a Mustang, but I'm spending how many times more? Like, I yeah. need I need something nicer under the hood. So, imagine, I mean, look, we know this. Understanding how to appreciate a watch movement is terribly complicated and te- tedious. It's probably the most complicated thing. I don't even always know what makes a good movement. So, to tell a novice coming in just understanding watches how to select a movement, I mean, you guys tell me, how do you do it? I mean, how many £20,000 watch purchases do you think people make without an understanding of the movement? An enormous amount. Quite a lot. When we speak to retailers and um, ADs here in Scotland, some of them tell stories of people just walking in and throwing bundles of cash down and not caring. So Mm -hmm. I suppose at that level, you'll get there eventually, Rick, where, you know, money is no object, it'll be fine. (laughs) When you start carrying it in rolls that are secured by rubber bands, you know that you're there. (laughs) In plastic bags. I've certainly heard of people who've spent multi-thousand pounds on a watch and then brought it back six weeks later saying it stopped because they didn't realise you had to wind it up. Yeah, that uh, happens a lot. You know, they think it was battery powered because the 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 AD has simply just sold them whatever they wanted, has had no conversation or discussion with them, or even the briefest amount of training <laughs> as to what to do with this watch. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, how do I identify? I mean, I, I haven't spent. Well, the closest I've come to spending that amount of money, <laughs> and I've still not got it, is Zenith Inventor. The fiction, which is the Zenith Inventor. Vaporware. Vaporware, but I've never spent anything more, uh, anything like that on a watch. And obviously I would consider myself at least to have a passing interest in the movement. And I don't ha- I don't have a particular issue with 7750s and all the rest of it in seven, eight, £9,000 watches, so long as they're offering something for that to take the the old IWC perpetual calendars that are built on that with a module on top. Uh, they're good watches. They, they do something very well for a, for a particularly low price point, even though because it's built on something that's established and well understood. I, I, think, I think it really goes back to presentation. And a beautifully made movement is a function of a company that's very proud of what they do and has confidence in it. So there's, I mean, like, I can't think of any movements that are just like freaking gorgeous, but like, you know, unless they're very, they're made in very few numbers that just, just, just suck, you know? So if you, if you have a nicely made movement, it tends to be that they put effort into all the steps, right? They made sure it's like nicely designed and they made sure it's assembled well and then they made sure it's made well because if someone decorates it that well, imagine all the other effort they put into it. These are some sort of like heuristic shortcuts that I think that a consumer might be able to apply. So if you look at the movement, it looks great and performs well. It has a nice tactile experience. You know, you wind the watch, unscrew the crown and wind it, set the time to see what it feels like. And you do that enough times between cheap things and expensive things, and you'll be like, oh, that Patek chronograph, that does feel different. So I agree that it's not really just about the movement. But again, especially at these high price points, don't discount the importance of an integrated package where they put as much you know, attention to the movement as they did everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, how bullet- and you'd experience how bulletproof are expensive, handmade 
movements when you get to this level? An incredibly good question, and I think the 7750 from a durability perspective will outlast many, many other movements, even more expensive ones. Um, the reality is the architecture of the movement, not the price, uh, is really what accounts for its durability. And unfortunately, you don't necessarily get what you pay for when it comes to durability. Um, but it's like that in a lot of other things. You know, luxury goods in a lot of sectors are going to be more fragile. They're not always going to be just because it's expensive. It's not, you know, bulletproof. Yeah. Um, if you're looking specifically for bulletproof things and most other things like shoes or cars or clothing or whatever, you know, an expensive suit can can, can stay in real easily. Um, with movements, you know, Grubel Force, for example, maybe is a little bit famous for having a little bit more durability uh, in in some of their movements. They think about that. You know, they have right. tourbillons, so they make sure that they're a little bit more shock resistant. So that's that's something which I think is really great. But it's rare. Along and Zona, I think, also cares a lot about um, how well their, their movements operate. They famously, you know, make the watch and then take it apart and then put it back together again just to make sure everything works properly. Steps like that are what's required. I mean, these are tiny little parts. Things can go wrong. Environmental effects... Um, you know, water intrusion, dust, these all these all have an effect on things like that. But I will say this, um, most of the expensive watches are probably not great performers. There's some great ones, but most aren't. Um, and Richard Mille are quite good at holding up to a battering, some of them. Um, I, do you know that from first-hand experience? Because I know from, <laughs> no, I know from experience, experience that uh, Richard Mille are designed to put up with a battering, but... What makes more sense, just replacing a broken one or actually engineering it to work? Mm. Just saying. That, <laughs> that is a consideration which goes on in the watch industry a lot. and for, It's less now, to be honest, but from, I'd say, the late 90s to like about 2015 or so, you had a lot of high-end watch brands that made very exotic things routinely ship products that didn't work. Oh. And one of my favorite, one of my favorite examples... Um, of of some of the things that can go wrong when it even tries to go right is the Harry Winston Opus Three. How and I was there. I remember seeing them be assembled. After the Opus Three came out, uh, Harry Winston wasn't able to deliver the watches for seven years because they never worked. And it took them seven years. Again, it didn't didn't necessitate seven years. They just really didn't want to keep pumping money into it because they completely lost money on the on the Opus Three. Does he but work for Zenith now? <laughs> um, so you have you know, people have to remember watches are made from hundreds of parts they're complicated they're moving all the time um, you know that's why quartz is so amazing hey you know you know a digital watch no moving parts what can go wrong throw it against the wall like nothing these 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 especially the, the ones that are you know made in small production runs a, a machine in order to be um, effective has to be built iteratively over time. Rolex is really good at that. They look at their stuff and they say, how is it aging? How do we fix it? Every improvement that Rolex has in their watch is a function of a mistake they made. Mm -hmm. And if you don't keep at it, you can't like sort of like work out the kinks. No one gets it right the first time. So we have these people designing in CAD for a limited edition of 100 watches or less, building the movements. They never end up actually testing them because things don't work in real life like they do in CAD. Mm. And and it's whatever reason doesn't work, and they don't have the time to experiment with different sizes and different materials and different oils and things like that because they already sold all 50 pieces and they're never going to make any more money. So the economics does not work in the favor many times of highly exotic movements made in small production numbers. Hmm. And those people that were 
uh, you know, wronged by buying watches never worked. The brands had to give them money. They had to give them other watches. They had to do favors for them. That's what they is. It's like, you know, uh, you, our expensive watch doesn't work. Uh, okay, here's another one. That's what they would do. It wasn't mm-hmm. like we're going to make it work. It's like we can never make it work. How can we make <laughs> you happy? I mean, we had a, a video that we did with Orage and Andy, who I think is Andy yep. the managing director of Orage. Yeah. He's the owner, anyway. I gave a very interesting spiel about in-house movements. They obviously have their own one, the K one. Right. And yep. his thing was about that actually the last people you want to build a new movement is watchmakers. What you want to design new movements is logistics people because it's all about how you get 200 parts in the same place at the right time and how you manage to iterate those parts because every one of those parts is going to need re-engineered at least once so suddenly your 170 parts is twice three times that amount and actually it's a logistics problem it's an engineering uh, a process problem assembling a watch and especially a new watch movement. We joke. We joke about that. That's like the ongoing joke all the time. Is you know, oh, oh prototype, prototype. Any anytime anything is wrong, it's a prototype. No matter what it is, <laughs> it's not a bug. It's a feature. I've still got you, you my know. prototype uh, Black Bay GMT. Still a prototype because the date still doesn't work. But there we go. Cool. So movement manufacturer, we're saying at that level above twenty grand, you need to be paying attention to what it is but you need to bear in mind as to what you're actually being promised. The internet in this particular case is valuable. Go and have a look. It might be put together by great watchmakers, but the forums will soon tell you in advance you're buying something if this thing's got bugs that are known about. Okay, item four, the Seal of Geneva. Now, this has been somewhat... Clubbed to death? I <laughs> clubbed to death. It's actually a, been strengthened since then. The Seal of Geneva has been significantly strengthened. Yeah, so talk us through what it is and why you think it's been strengthened, uh, in okay, rec- so re- particularly in recent history. So again, I'm just going to you know go back to the the sort of original prompt, which was how can I help people who don't really know about this stuff come in and, and try to use certain signals mm-hmm. in a watch that you know, really help you know whether or not this is worth the price. I think a big goal at this price point is you and I know that there's a bunch of watches at this price point. They all have different flavors. It's not that none of them are are worth the money, but it's really of a personal thing. What I want people to worry about here is overspending because what happens is that certain consumers get into watches, um, you know, ignorantly. We're all ignorant. We get into it, but they get screwed. And so it ruins it for them. And they never buy any more watches. So I knew that I had a reason to educate people who were going in at the top, even if that was their first watches, because if they had a bad experience, it ruined watches forever for them. Mm-hmm. So I was, trying to, I was trying to prevent that from happening. So the Seal of Geneva is by no means the only mark of quality. But I think we can all agree that like a watch that has the Seal of Geneva, it's not a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. So, who, so, so there, who gives it? Trust, where, where does it come from? So the Seal of Geneva is a standard. It's not really a testing agency. It's a standard. And not every single watch is certified, but there's a process the watch goes through which is certified. And the Seal of Geneva, I, I, I don't remember all the specific little things, but it means a few things. One, it means that the watch is manufactured within a certain sort of geographic diameter around Geneva, in Geneva and a little bit around it. 
Um, the watch has certain aesthetic hallmarks and decoration. That's very, very important. None of the, none, the chronometer, it can look horrible, but it performs well. So the Seal Geneva is also an aesthetic uh, certification that has certain you know, decoration and things like that. And it's also a performance standard, meaning the watch actually has to be tested. So it is, there's part of it is, is a testing process. And it's, what's interesting about the Seal of Geneva and some other seals is it tests the movement inside of the watch, whereas the, the cost of chronometer rating tests the movement outside of the watch. And then when the movement's put into the watch, it's presumed that it operates the same way, but, but that's actually not true. Um, it doesn't it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, so important. In previous episode, we dealt with a COSC certification and the equivalence. And the important thing to point out is that COSC is to do with the movement. I don't know who sends their watches for COSC certification at the moment. Uh, I mean, Rolex does. They still do. Breitling do does still, a lot of them. So Bre- when Breitling send uh, something to COSC to get assessed, they're sending the movement. They're not sending the watch. So mm-hmm. Rolex will manufacture X number of movements. They'll send them to be cost satisfied, get the certificates back, and then they'll decide what watch they're putting that movement in. So the movements that are shared amongst multiple different types of Rolex or Breitling or or whatever get tested as movements, whereas Geneva Seal, they test the watch, the whole thing. But oh, Rolex yeah. also then case them up and they've got their own superlative chronometer marking. Yes, in Rolex case, they then do some other bits and pieces with them. As Same with Omega, brands. with uh, yeah. was it Metas. Yes, the meta certification. The, 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 the problem there goes back to this notion of self-certification. Mm-hmm. Rolex, Omega, Ulysses Nardon, Patek Philippe, you know, uh, maybe a few others. They they self-certify, but that's only as honest as they are, and mm-hmm. most people don't even know what that means. And if you really look into it, um, the Patek Philippe seal, it actually doesn't have a specific standard. I actually, this is a fascinating thing. I was like, could I read like what it what it what you know what's needed to apply to the Patek Philippe seal <laughs> and they're like well you know we we don't really have we have like apparently um when Stern, Stern senior uh, wrote out this like manifesto I, I would love to see this thing I would love to see he wrote out a manifesto of like what a Patek Philippe watch should be and the problem it's actually a very interesting issue if if all the management dies and all they have is historic watches they don't know how to make them they don't know how to set a standard if you don't have it in you as an emotion you don't know what like what would make a Patek Philippe right <laughs> so they had they, they couldn't they didn't know how to write it. so he has this like manifesto of notes that apparently somehow is translated into the seal. So it's actually super wishy-washy, and I would love for Patek Philippe to um, specify things a little bit more, but this gets into one of the Swiss secrets that we're not allowed to talk mm-hmm. about. <laughs> so is this like this recipe to cocoa? So are we saying that if it doesn't pass on, then Patek could you know start producing digital watches or something because they forgot what we right right that's it's a legitimate concern um <laughs> you know what a hundred years from now how do you explain what a Patek Philippe is supposed to be so well no 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 you'll still be you'll still be in the queue to get yours so I'll be fine right right yeah well you, I, you know but it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting intellectual question that they don't like to talk to us about but it's a real thing so going back on this notion of the seals um I use the seal of Geneva as you know example since then it's been strengthened there's other ones out there there's um uh the chronofi um there's that one that's around where chopard uh, comes from there's a few of these certifications out there mm-hmm. it's really not important to make sure that you buy a watch that has these certifications but if you're a novice 
it's it sets a high bar so that when you buy other watches you'll be able to see how nice are these other watches compared to the ones that have these various types of certifications bogus certifications i mean there's not that many out there other than swiss made um, yes actually other than the biggest one of all which is yes swiss made <laughs> yeah that's a very good point and again yeah. actually just to bring this back to people we've already plugged uh, which is our age, and they very deliberately just put on handmade even though they could put on swiss made i think Moser are the same they they tend not to put i don't think they put swiss made on either just because both of them as organizations are like this this so doesn't I, I just mean did anything a big... anymore a big interview with um, uh, Christoph um, Moussi from Maron Moussi about they have a new standard they're trying to push called Swiss Crafted. Oh, right. Okay. Which, uh, again, it's wishy-washy because it doesn't even have rules. I'm like, I'm like, so the point is to use <laughs> all Swiss parts, most Swiss parts, just Swiss people. Like, you know what I mean? I, I think the idea is that, like, save for maybe a couple of tiny little exotic things. Pretty much everything or everything is done by, you know, Swiss companies in Switzerland. And, you know, the, the thing is, that doesn't necessarily make a watch better. It definitely makes it more expensive. But there's this wonderful tradition of precision machining in Switzerland. And the people that are in Switzerland that go out to make a watch, not with a big brand, but on their own, usually they come with a, a sense of confidence or know-how that allows them to do at least some part of that correctly. And I think of someone like Romain Gautier, who you know was hired to do a lot of stuff for Chanel, and his watches are fantastic. He's not a watchmaker by training. He's, a, he's an engineer. And at some point, he just got pulled into like making some parts for watch brands and now he makes his own watches and things like that but you know if you look at his stuff he has a love of surface finishing on 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 parts and he's a machinist right so he's not like philippe de is like sitting there do, rub, rubbing one out by hand all day rubbing one out by hand <laughs> that's how i said it yes yeah, yeah, i was yeah. trying to amuse you i'm glad you're still awake there because um, he's literally rubbing it by hand um <laughs> so there's 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 a art form to finishing metals that exists in some places um, in Switzerland is very rare in other places. But so when you say, oh, all people from Switzerland, the hope is that there's, there's you know, men and women like this that are just obsessed with this craftsmanship and want it to look beautiful. It's not guaranteed, but there's a much better chance of a watch being awesome that's made all in Switzerland than one that's made not at all in Switzerland, but that is then brought in, cased up in Switzerland, and is like, oh, Swiss made. Like, which one would you trust more to be an awesome mm. watch? Absolutely. Yeah. I was listening to, I think, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it might have been a Houdinki episode. Apologies if you're listening to this, whoever it is, and I've just forgotten who put this idea out there into the world, which was, you know, these exploded diagrams of assemblies that you get yeah. for watches yeah. is to do a wee manual with exploded diagrams of all the watches and color code them according to which country they came from put wee flags next to them i've seen so, that someone's uh, someone's already done that years ago yeah someone somebody was talking about it. i can't remember who it was though so i'd like what to see that was it? for uh, i've seen for, that for before. some of these yeah someone's done that but i think we should try and do that for everywhere I think Cecile Purnell. I think it was Cecile Purnell. All right, okay. So let's move on from Seal of Geneva to something we've already touched on briefly, uh, which is exotic materials. So we've touched on gold and platinum. Right now, very quickly, what would you say is the most exotic material that watches are made out of? This is excluding the cheese watch that Moser make. I mean, 
I think I think it, the important thing is to first of all explain that this is a very relative notion. Mm-hmm. So to some people, the most precious thing in the world is the watch with Napoleon's hair in it, which mm-hmm. you know Dewitt made. Okay, like that could be like, wow, oh my God, Napoleon's actual hair. You, we've seen watches with, um, you know, like uh, rocks from Mars and these various, you know, rare meteorites and things like that, precious stones. You know, to a degree, a material is worth what a human being is willing to pay for it. And that goes into the wonderful subjectivity, which makes the diversity of watches so possible. So I don't know that you could say what's the, you know, there's, there, are there materials that have a high current market value? Okay, you know, then what are we talking about? Platinum, palladium, something like that? I don't know. I mean, sapphire does seem to be the, the material of the moment to try and do things with. But and it's not- cheap. It's <laughs> cheap. Well, so yes, it is cheap. Synthetic sapphire is cheap. It's just the machining. <laughs> it's ideal Look, for it- the luxury industry. Make something that is actually really cheap to make. It's all about the margins, boys. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, as well as Bremen. Romain Jerome that made one out of bits of the Titanic as well. Yep. Yeah, yes. I have one of those watches. I I love it. I mean, it's you He's know, sickle. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I look at that and realize, wow, this happened a hundred years before I was born. No, I you know I couldn't have had anything to do with this. Not that long. <laughs> not about that much life before I was born. But you get the point. Yeah. So what about silicon then? Are we talking exotic materials for case? Or are we talking about for movement as well, escapement technology? Well, I mean, the most exotic move, the most exotic material probably used at the moment is that Vanta Black. Which that's, isn't actually good for watchmaking. It's actually terrible for watchmaking. Everyone it, that's used it hates. It's a wonderful material, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not good for watchmaking. It's uh, just it, you. You can't. Lo- you can't even look at it without getting a speck on it. It's impo- It's impossible to keep clean. <laughs> impossible. Good stuff. So that's probably the most exotic. But yeah, you've got obviously, as you're saying, Ricky, the the bits of watch are now being made out of more and more exotic parts: silicon, silicium, all sorts of things, carbon. So let's move it on because a, a, a lot of this has to do with the next one, which is hand assembly and construction. So as well right. as getting it in your exotic material and your in-house movement, a lot of that has to do with just how long the human hand has to spend doing something with it. And I suppose it is probably a reasonably straightforward equation. The number of hours spent equals the more expensive watch. I think watch brands are quite good at charging out their per hour rates in their price. I don't think there's many that spend loads and loads of time and people on their watch and then don't charge for it. I think a general rule that I like to help explain is, you know, when, when you're when you're spending money on an electric product, try to think about spending money on human hours. Mm. It's the most effective way to help someone buy something which is worth the money from an inherent value perspective. If you just want to buy a popular brand, that's fine. You don't need my advice to do that. Um, I, I actually find that funny. Sometimes they're like, they, they're like, which brand do you like more? I'm like, do you want me to review watches or do you want me to tell you which brand you should like more? Because I don't know that that's what any reviewer should be doing. So it, it gets kind of like, you know, these things get intertwined together. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to buy brands, though I encourage people to like brands. What I want people to try and do is to buy human effort. And a good brand will put a lot of human effort into a watch. But sometimes that effort is is difficult to calculate. You know, Rolex, for example, they have this insane assembly line of people that are just so efficient. Um they may do less work per watch than some more high-end companies, but their process is actually far more valuable. And as you know, for on any industrial scale, no watch 
has been able to match Rolex's finishing quality. Um, and so that finishing has has value to it. But to explain that to a layperson is is so challenging. So that's why I like to have people use their eyes look closely if you see, if you think that something looks nicer than something else it probably does um i think that your ability to touch something to operate something to look at something these are far better judges of quality than reading schematics on paper or listening to someone else's advice or seeing something in a picture. So I, I think that when it comes to the preciousness is people have to ask themselves, what looks nice to me? I have good taste. I have to trust in my taste. I see it. I feel it. I mean, it's like with leather straps. Leather is just the term. There's there's horrendous leather straps and there's fantastic leather straps. Can you explain the difference? You just have to touch a bunch of them to know. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is one of these things... Yeah. There's something intangible that when you pick up something that is expensive and is well made, you can kind of just tell. And it's a bit of a stupid explanation of, yeah, you just know it when you see it. But there is an element to which you do just know it when you see it. Um, this goes back to the notion of when you don't know what something is worth by, by the artist. Rolex okay. has gone to great lengths to explain what they're worth, mm-hmm. right? Like great lengths to explain what they're worth. Um, and, and you know, Stepan Sarpaneva is a guy with a friendly smile and a fun-looking watch. And if you weren't a nerd like us, I don't know if you'd know what to make of the guy. You'd look mm-hmm. at it and be like, one person? You don't have very many expenses. Why are your watches so expensive? You know, <laughs> like you could come to a bunch of erroneous conclusions about it. If you know what we know, and you ask us, and you ask us, you know, is a Sarpaneva watch too expensive? You're like, no, not really. He can't be selling that many, and he doesn't exactly live in a, like a, a glamorous lifestyle. Like he's doing okay, of course, but you know, he's still got to hustle. He's still got to go into the shop every day. He's still got to make watches. He's, you know, he's a blue collar watchmaker, and you know, I I think that his 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 prices are probably pretty fair as a result. But you have to go down the rabbit hole pretty far to come to that conclusion. So. If you want to buy an artist, that's great, but you have to understand the the genre of the art in addition to the human being that's doing it. And mm-hmm. that's a complicated process for a lot, a lot of people to do. So complicated process leads us nicely on to point number seven, complications. Now, let's start by just asking, what in your mind, Ricky, to start off with, is the most pointless complication in a watch that you've come across? Day night indicator. Day, that's right, a data indicator when you can just open the curtains. Yes. For me, for me, the best complication, but also the most pointless, is the equation of time. I just love it. There's a panerai with an equation of time. All it's got on it is an equation of time on it. And I just think it's an epic watch, but completely superfluous to any necessity. What about yourself, Ariel? Um, I wrote an article in 2012 called Top 5 Useless Watch Complications. So I'm uh-huh. just looking at it. It's on a okay. blog to watch. And I'll just name the five on here. Right, go for it. Go um, for it. These aren't in particular order. It's not like number one is more useless than number five. Um, a Fudroyante. <laughs> okay. Totally useless. Yeah. Uh, a Planetarium. Mm-hmm. Um, totally useless. Uh, equation of Time. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm ahead of you there. Yeah, yeah. But I'm glad that we see eye to eye on the uselessness of the Equation of Time. Uh, moon Phase Indicator. Not really useful. Um, and a tourbillon Com- actually makes the watch even a poorer performer. <laughs> I, I just think that the idea of an equation of time is great because it allows you to be perpetually late or early and always say that you're right on time. But there we go. Um, 
if that's if that's what gets you excited, then <laughs> by all means, I want to give that to you. Yeah. So complications as a general way of valuing a watch. I mean, obviously, the more complicated it is, the more costly it probably is to buy. Are there some complications that are intrinsically worth looking for? Or considering when you're looking at higher end watches? Well, you know, there's there's certain traditional complications that require um, a lot of work. The useless ones require, you know, a lot of work as well. But there's certain ones that are sort of like time honored um, for, you know, just just being complex. So the most difficult movements to make are things like split second uh, chronographs, uh, minute repeaters, um, ultra thin. That's very difficult to do. Um, Perpetual calendars? No, <laughs> not really. I mean, I guess there's a lot of parts, but not that big of a deal. Mm. You have, you know, exotic tourbillons that have like a b- bunch of little pieces in there, and an, an exotic and a tourbillon is difficult to assemble. You know, we're talking about things where the the, the utility isn't really useful to us. Um, but I'd say, you know, really when it comes down to it, it's it's the minute repeater or different types of repeaters or musical watches, you know, whatever it is that are probably the most interesting because the hammer and the gongs each need to be tweaked and bent, you know, one by one. Each watch is actually different. No two minute repeaters are really the same. I mean, some of them sound awful, but it's like a musical instrument. And that's kind of what makes them special. They can be like this, the one that just sounds so amazing, right? They're going to be two identical watches, but because they're tweaked differently on the inside, they sound different. And so right, I've, I've, I've never heard a minute repeater and thought that sounds really bad, but you've obviously seen more than I have. So you've you've come across some minute repeaters and played them and gone, actually, that's just badly tuned. Well, I mean, can can you blame me? I've heard like hundreds of these things. <laughs> I've heard maybe half a dozen, so I don't have the experience you've got. I've heard I've heard every in every repeater and and. You know, people have weird rules like, oh, steel is the best case material, titanium is. I've heard platinum ones that sound amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one thing that people need to remember about minute repeaters is the enemy of good sound is water resistance. So the real challenge is making a water resistant watch that sounds great. But the old minute repeaters and pocket watches, they sounded amazing. You couldn't uh-huh. get any water in them. But like a hundred year old, like, like you know, you buy them for like $2,000. It's going to sound like way better than your like random, like brand new. Uh, minute repeater wristwatch. Cool, cool. So I suppose complications really is about what you fancy. That there are so many different complications out there. It really has become a bit of a feeding frenzy over the last ten years. And the, to be fair, the prices have come down. You can get tourbillons now, whether it be your kind of Chinese or some lower end Swiss. Uh, you know, you can pick them up for far cheaper than you ever could. Same with chronographs, even split seconds. The likes of the Habrings. What they're doing, they've got a five minute repeater which is i think only just into five figures and it's a five minute chimer so it won't give you the chime down to the actual minute but it'll give you it within five minutes you you, you could get one for four figures from nivrel there's this there's a five minute repeater movement that's like a stock movement that you could purchase for not that much so um five minute repeaters are actually the best value out there and and the only difference is they tell the time accurate to the five minute versus the one minute which these days I, don't, I think hardly matters exactly you can always just look at your phone if you don't need to know so moving on to the home run now so very briefly and this is really in the eye of the the, the, the beer holder as I say is highly refined and designer looks I've got a feeling that this is probably was more of an issue when you originally wrote this than it is now maybe that was because Terry Nataf was in charge of Zenith 
and they all look terrific. <laughs> so you know how we have like the micro brands now that are like, but they come in with you know less expensive stuff. It makes sense. Around this era, back in 2009, you had these micro brands popping up with super expensive stuff. Mm. So I don't know if you guys remember this, but this was like when there's like every week there was like a new company coming out with like a fifty or hundred thousand dollar watch, mm. and you know there was like this feeding frenzy, and a lot of the stuff was junk. So I think what was important is that when you look through watches that have a novel design, you should know that they're not all going to look good a few years from now. Some will, yes, but not all. Not all will, and so refinement is the process of having something that is just, again, iteratively made better and better over time. And classic designs are refined because people have worked out all the kinks, right? So it's it's really sort of emphasizing a sense of purchasing conservatism. You have to be very, very confident in knowing your tastes and knowing what looks good to buy like an MB&F, mm. right? Like, like that's scary as hell for most people, right? $200,000 on what? <laughs> like you got to know... That, that watch does a lot of things right. And again, not for beginners. Yeah. So when I say highly refined designer looks, I think the point I'm trying to make is it's got to be something that you feel has a sense of universal appeal because that's a good place to start. Look, look for things that look not just like great to you, but you think will look good to others because it'll help you ease in there. Because what can happen is you can buy something that you can be obsessed with for a week and then be like, oh my God, what have I done? And that's happened. <laughs> that's happened. Yeah. There are some classic rules to design. You know, it's not just a complete free-for-all. There are rules. There are perspective. There are things are uh, coherently, you know, is the design coherent? Does it make sense? Does it stand apart from the crowd, but at the same time use use standard design rules? So, yeah, let's uh, bring it home. Final two then. And we'll just ask for a number here. So number nine is limited production. What represents to you, pick a number, Ricky, what represents 69, to you limited? <laughs> so so, always, so that's that's the maximum of which, so Omega win mm-hmm. at, at that from the Moonwatch. Ariel, what is a limited design run? Well, if you notice here, I said limited production, not limited edition. Yeah. Um, the, the idea is that because it's difficult, because it's rare, because it takes a lot of time, the, the, a luxury watch shouldn't be able to be mass-produced. It should, by, by definition, be something that's hard to make or impossible to make in high quantities. So it, you know, if, they, if they could have made a million but stopped at 10, I don't know that that counts, right? Or okay. if th- that's, that's sort of artificial limitation. What I'm talking about is what I call natural limitation. It, you know, if one person or a small team of people have to do these one by one, how many can they crank out a year and still you know, be able to go home and wash themselves? You know, there's a certain number. Oftentimes, it's a few hundred, maybe a few thousand. So I think that, you know, in the few thousand number is really the top amount that a brand should be producing if they're charging max numbers um, on, on watches. And if a brand has a segment where they make very expensive watches and more affordable ones, you know, make sure that those super expensive watches they make are no more than a few hundred per year, oftentimes less than a hundred. Those are the numbers that I would look at. And on the limited edition side, have you ever bought a watch just because it was limited edition? Hell no. Yes. Ricky? Yes. Kind of, maybe. Kind of, maybe. <laughs> many was times. It Ome- was it an Omega by any chance? No, the only Omega I ever bought wasn't limited. That was what made it so unique and special. <laughs> I yes. bought a lot. Of li- Look, I've bought a lot of limited editions. Don't get me wrong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
it but it was never one time has it been solely because it's it's limited in numbers not once okay. not interested in that and, and that leads us on then to our final point which is investment grade acquisition obviously limited production limited edition may play a part in terms of you spending 20k or more on a watch and it's still being worth that or potentially even more five years down down the line what is the easiest way of ensuring that a watch you buy is not necessarily worth more but is at least you're not going to lose your shirt on it says rolex in the dial is that it is that basically it <laughs> and it's made of out steel. of everything in this top in this top things to look for in a luxury watch twenty thousand dollars over out of all these 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 ten items that we've we've gone through and we've talked about this is the one area that i've written about the most since this article was published i mean you know 11 years ago um i didn't know a number of things I know now, especially about auction auction world. And at that time, you didn't have all these like speculators to come in to try to like boost up vintage watch prices. Like this, this statement, you know, it doesn't make sense today. This, this, what I wrote here, of course, there's, there's value to this and, and the, the wisdom is still there, but I would have to qualify this statement so many times over for, uh, uh you know, for, for audience today. Um, I think the most important thing to say is, is watches are not investments, and the easiest way to lose your investment is to spend more than retail. So number one, do not spend more than retail. If you do, your only your only luck is to find some other sucker who's willing to pay even more over retail than you. <laughs> Otherwise, uh-huh. you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So don't ever do that. Um, I say friends do not let friends pay over retail. That's just that there's there's literally no exceptions. It, you you are you are adding to a bad system. You are feeding you are feeding uh, sin. You are doing bad things for yourself. You are foolish. Do not ever 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 buy a watch over retail. Okay, if you do it, I don't admit it to me. I never want to know that you've done it. <laughs> Just everyone out there, never ever ever do it. Okay, that's okay, all boss. I'm going to say about that. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But you do need to buy a watch that you feel is going to still be something that someone else cares about down the road because there are times that we do need to sell things or we want to give something to someone like you know a, a child or an heir or something like that um so i guess what 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 is, this is really sort of a, a psychological question you have to ask yourself will this item have value to me in the future um so for some people it's you know it's it's a it's a rare rolex or a rare patek or these, you know, these days, pretty much, you know, any steel Rolex or you know, certain watches at Patek that you feel in the future will still have demand. I don't know what people are going to think about a Nautilus twenty years from. I have no idea. They might care. They might not. It's, it happens to be popular now for the main reason that business people don't wear suits as much anymore. But that's a whole other discussion. So ask yourself if it's something that is going to be as valuable to years from now. If if it's something that someone just told you is valuable, but you don't really know why and doesn't have much sentimental attachment to you, chances are it's not an investment-grade acquisition for you because you don't even know why it's valuable. Don't let someone else tell you why it's valuable. Know for yourself why you're spending that money. Never, ever buy something that is that is expensive just because someone else tells you it's worth it. And so never spend over retail and know what the value is in something. When you know what the value is in something, even if you intend on never selling it, you still consider it at least a personal investment. And don't do drugs, kids. 
So that's the basic advice. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> Never spend over retail. Only do investment-grade <laughs> drugs, okay? <laughs> and we're not going to point you in the direction of any well-known uh, watch celebrities to get advice on that. No. Anyway, so, yeah, well, I think we'll leave it at that because that is sound advice. And I suspect in the Q&A that we will do for the final episode... Probably all the questions will be, should I buy a Rolex and how much is this watch worth and what should I invest in? So we'll deal with that some more, I suspect, in the next episode. So for the Q&A episode, which will follow on to this one, you'll have seen various posts about this on social media. If you either go to the a blog to watch Instagram account or the Scottish Watches Instagram account or both of the websites, you'll be able to have seen where information about Watches 101 has been posted. And you can either ask your question on there uh, in the comment sections or in direct messaging and we will collate them together. We will probably also think of some other novel way of doing it, probably Instagram Live and we'll try, or you can email them in and we'll try and get... Uh, well, I'm glad you're going to be collating all that stuff together, Rick. I, I will do all of that work. I'm quite sure that Ariel will be willing to let me get access to the blog to watch Instagram account password so that I can collate all of those questions. I don't think that'll be a problem. I'm, sh- I'm sure much like that they gave the Omega Instagram password to the, the old Omega fella. guy, to, the, to uh, Pat- Pet- Petros, Petros, Papa, I can't remember his surname. Much like they gave him access to the Omega Instagram account, I'm sure the good IT team at a blog to watch will have no difficulty trusting me with their passwords. So that is where we will leave it from now. So let's say goodbye, Ariel. Where should everybody find you? I am Ariel Adams, the founder of blogtowatch.com. You can go to blogtowatch.com to see our daily new articles on watches and watch reviews and watch news. And we have a pretty active Instagram channel as well as YouTube channel. And where should they hunt for you, Ricky? Oh, scottishwatches.co.uk. <laughs> and you can find me there as well. So look forward to hearing from you for the final show of this mini-series, Watches 101. So it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from all of them. Goodbye. Goodbye from me. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.